What it really is, is Jesus coming to you and to me and to every single one of us individually. And he hands you a lightsaber and he says, do you want to overthrow the empire? Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with the subject. If you're new, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because we're interested in building bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Keith Giles. He's the best-selling author of the Jesus Un series. He has appeared on CNN, USA Today, BuzzFeed, and more. After leaving full-time ministry over 11 years ago, he started a house church in Southern California that gave away everything to the poor. Keith, welcome back to the show. Joey, thank you so much. It's good to be back, and I'm uh, glad your, your podcast is back. Yeah, we're excited to, to bring it back. I'm super glad we got to connect again. Uh, you know, people can listen to your previous episode. Uh, the menu has become the meal. Uh, but, you know, just by way of introduction again, can you give us a brief recap of how you got introduced to church and faith? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. So um, I feel like I always talked to God, even though I, before I was even officially sort of quote unquote a Christian, you know what I mean? I used to lay in bed and think about God and talk to God and all that stuff. I, I felt like I had a very simple childlike faith in God before we went to church or before I even knew any of the answers to any of those questions, but I certainly had the questions. And um, probably like around, I'd say maybe 10 or 11 years old, um, my parents and I went to this lighthouse free will Baptist church in Eagle Pass, Texas. And it seemed like all of our questions, or at least my questions were answered. Uh, we kind of, that's how we kind of entered this Christian journey. And, um, yeah, so that was a long time ago. And then I was licensed and ordained into the ministry like 31 years ago. Um, and, you know, sort of churches and all that kind of stuff. And so I've seen it from, I've seen what happens from the other side of the curtain if you will, behind the scenes. And uh, that's led to a lot of my deconstruction, I think. Well, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. So today on the show, we are discussing the end times. You know, many people can look at our times and think this is the end. I'm sure people have been thinking that for a very long time, Uh, you know, even since Jesus left us. And, And Keith, to start our conversation, there's a verse that's always puzzled me, which is John 16, 7 where Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away. What did Jesus mean? And why did, you know, why did he say that? Why is it better that he would go away? Yeah, that is a very interesting passage of scripture. And I do think that Christians, we don't really understand. I mean, I think, I think if we understood what he meant by that, um, we would agree with him. We would say, yep, he's exactly right. It was better that he went away. But see, we've inherited this in times you know, hype that we are, that we're swimming in nowadays, which actually contradicts Jesus. We actually say, oh, no, 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 Jesus, it's going to be so much better when you get back. Well, please just come back and make it better because that's going to fix everything. But that's not Jesus' perspective. His perspective, right, was, hey, guys, this is going to be so much better if I go away. And again, we don't get it. So, so what does he mean by that? Well, uh, what I talk about in the book is this idea, uh, and I'm trying to reframe how we define the second coming. And I'm sure we'll get into that as we go into the conversation. But um, I think what Jesus was talking about when he said, it's better for you if I go away, 
Really, I think he's referring to what happened at Pentecost. He's talking about the Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh, men and women, young and old, everyone. And so I think his intention is something that we, like when I, when I, what I say what I'm about to say, most Christians are going to say, oh yeah, I knew that. But we don't live as if it's true. We don't live as if it's the primary reality. But what Jesus meant by that was that you know, if I go away and the spirit is poured out on all flesh, I will live in you. I will abide in you. You will abide in me. He says, he says in the same chapter uh, of John chapter 14, my father and I will come and we will make our home in you. So this question of where is Jesus is not up in heaven somewhere working on my mansion. Uh, he's, he's here. He's right here. And um, so so like one of the things I say in the book is that there is more of Christ in the world today than there was 2,000 years ago. And when I say there is more of Christ in the world today than there was 2,000 years ago, I mean Christ is here in the flesh because I have flesh and I have bone and I have blood and Christ is in me. So I am an incarnation of Christ in the world and you are too. And all of us who, who have awakened to this understanding are also the incarnation of Christ in the world today. There, that's why. That's what Jesus means when he says, it's going to be so much better if I go away. Why? Because there's not just one Christ in the world in the body of Jesus. There is now potentially thousands, millions of Christs all over the world where God through, you know, through his spirit and abiding in us, can we are the hands and the feet of Christ. We are, that's why we're called the body of Christ. We really are. <laughs> that's that's legit. That's real. So in many ways, I think it's inaccurate to say, to talk like Jesus has left us, that he's not here. That, I mean, he couldn't get more here than he is. I, I believe we are connected to him in an intimate way that is as real as we could possibly imagine, but we have to wake up to that. Now, along those lines of when Jesus is coming back, I personally doubt that John and Paul and all the other disciples looked around and, and said, Jesus is coming back on this day and at this time, like like others in Christianity have done over the years. You have something very interesting, and I'm really interested in the answer. Why did predictions about the return of Christ only start after 1830? What is so special about that year? Right. So, yeah, 1830 was the year <clears throat> that— um, this whole end times hype that we are currently aware of and, and, and suffering through uh, in our lifetime, that's really where it all began. And that's that's kind of the, one of the big epiphanies that I want people to, the things I want people to understand in my book that I'm trying to show us is that um, the way we think about the second coming, the way we think about the end times, looking for events in the Middle East that are happening, and oh my gosh, this maps to something in Revelation, or this this is something over here in Daniel, or whatever, like we did, that's what we do. But before 1830, Christians didn't think that way. They didn't do that. So, I mean, imagine for 1,830 years, Christians weren't doing this. But, but, but since 1830, this is all we do. So, again, this guy named John Nelson Darby, uh, he was in England. Um, he, uh, I talk about in the book, I go through this in very, very much detail in the book historically, but um, two major things happened in John Nelson Darby's life. And it, by, this is by his own admission. Um, the first thing was he fell off his horse and hit his head. 
The second thing was around about that time, there was a young teenage girl at a sort of a revival meeting in England who, uh, who had a vision and had this idea of the second coming of Jesus that was going to happen very, very soon. And um, he was inspired by her testimony and her vision. And then he pretty much went through the Old Testament uh, prophecies, prophecies, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Isaiah, all these different places. And then also went into, of course, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew and Revelation and First Thessalonians. And um, he kind of stitches together and weaves together a narrative, which is this end times futurism. And it's dispensationalism, it's dispensational theology. Um, and it, it becomes something that becomes very, very popular. Now in, in America, in, in England initially, not at all. No one was buying it, <laughs> but it comes to America and we are like, we eat it up with a spoon. And so thanks to um, some people um, like D.L. Moody, um, uh, the Schofield Reference Bible, um, things like that, where they started incorporating his notes into the scriptures, uh, it, started, it just kind of became a popular movement. And, and so fast forward today to, to where we are now, um, and we're, we're, we're caught in this, like the blood moons and, you know, there's going to be this thing and this, some guy's got a book, someone's got a prophecy, they sent a date, people are selling their houses and, you know, uh, quitting their jobs and moving to the mountains. And, uh, and, and, and so ever since 1830, right, almost immediately after John Nelson Darby popularizes his theory, we have people setting dates. Um, and, and it's been going on ever since. Uh, now, I, I want to go back, though, to something quickly, though, that you said the way you phrased the question about how, you know, you don't, you don't think Paul and John and the early apostles were sort of predicting that Jesus is coming back. Well, I would say that in their minds, if we go back to the first century um, and to the apostles, I do think they expected a, a coming of Christ. And I do think that that is something they speak about in, in the New Testament. The difference is that the coming they're talking about is not the, the return of Jesus on a pony in the sky um, to, you know, roll back the heavens like a scroll or a taco and, uh, you know, lay waste to his enemies. That's, that's again, that's, that's the Darby filter that we, that we read it through. They had a, an idea of the coming of Christ as being a judgment in the, in the sort of Old Testament kind of judgment sense. Um, this is the kind of coming Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. This is the kind of coming that we see in Revelation when Jesus addresses at the beginning of Revelation the, the seven churches, and he says, it's a warning to them, right? He says, here's some things you're doing that are good, good for you, keep doing it. By the way, here's some things you're doing that are wrong or bad, or I want you to stop doing them. And he says, and if you don't stop, I am going to come to you and take away your lampstand. That's not a good coming. That's not, oh, yay, Jesus is coming. No, it's like, you better watch out. I'm going to come, and when I do, there's going to be something, you know, like a, there's some discipline involved. That's the coming that they were, that they were thinking of. In their minds, what they have, what's in view is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the end of the age, which is not code for the end of the world. It's, the, it's code for what Daniel re refers to as the end of the Jewish age. Uh, and Paul talks about it in Romans, it's now, it, it's the end of the Jewish age and the age of the Gentiles begins. And that's kind of where we would be today. So it's just, it's, uh, what I'm trying to do in the book is explain all those things. I spent probably two thirds of the book taking us back from the beginning. What, what is, how did Darby confuse us? 
um, what is it really, what are those scriptures really telling us? What do, you know, what do they mean when they say end of the age or coming or things like that? And then what do we have to look forward to for the future? And um, so that's kind of the, the three major things I'm trying to do. In the book. I can ask this question if it's a different answer, but is is that, you know, is the rapture question connected to Darby? Absolutely. In fact, the whole rapture theology is one of the major things that Darby popularizes. Um, he, he um, of course, takes this passage, you know, from First um, Thessalonians, from Paul, uh, about how we will be caught up to meet him in the air. And um, and so then, then there becomes this sort of theology of the end times that's centered around this rapture theology. And again, this is one of these things where we, we think we're given a choice in, in American Christianity. You know, you get to choose, are you pre or mid or post? Like, you know, where are you going to put that rapture? Does the rapture happen before uh, the tribulation? Does it happen during the tribulation? Or does the rapture happen after the tribulation? What you don't understand is that all three choices are the same choice. You're your choice is to accept Darby's dispensational rapture theory. You just, your only, your only choice is to decide where you want to put it, but you're still, again, it's the, assumpt- uh, the assumption that your only choice is this end times rapture. And then, you know, the, the only, the, the choice is where to put it in time. But again, before 1830, Christians weren't thinking this way. They weren't looking, they weren't thinking of the end times in this way. Um, so one of the things I talk about in the book is, how to understand those, especially that scripture uh, where Paul talks about um, what seems to be, and again, it's the only verse in scripture that seems to describe something like a sort of left behind, uh, you know, rapture idea. A thief in the night, if you will. Yes. Oh, yeah. Or the, yes. If you're like my age, uh, a thief in the night, which were horrible, horrible films. Terrifying. So, so here's one thing I point out. Okay. So let me, and I think I can do this quickly. But in the book, I, of course, I take a lot more time to do it and, and explain it. But um, for, for brevity's sake, let me say this. So the Olivet Discourse, this is the, this is the, by the way, it's repeated in Matthew 24, and it's also paralleled in Mark and in Luke. So in, all, in these three Gospels, Jesus goes through what's called the Olivet Discourse. This is, the, this is where a lot of dispensational end times theology comes from, because we misunderstand, we think that what Jesus is describing is the second coming and the rapture. Okay, um, but if we back up to the beginning, how does this start? How does he, Jesus even begin to go to launch into this description of, of the end of the age? Well, it starts off in all three versions. It starts off with Jesus and the disciples. They're walking out of the temple. And as they're leaving the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the disciples pause and gesture to the temple and, and say, wow, isn't this temple magnificent? This, have you seen anything more amazing than this temple? It's really, really an impressive thing. And Jesus' response to their awe of the temple is to say, a time is coming very soon when not one stone of this temple will remain upon the other, but all of it will be cast to the ground. And their, their reaction is, whoa, whoa, what? Wait, Jesus, tell us, please, what will be the sign of these things? And then he goes up on the Mount of Olives, and then he begins to explain what he's explaining is what are the signs they should be looking for, for when that temple is going to be destroyed. So when he says in the Olivet Discourse, and some of you standing here won't taste death before all, he says this, all of these things come to pass, meaning everything I'm describing 
is comes to pass, you'll be alive when it happens. And he was right because what he was describing was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, roughly 40 years from the moment that from him saying what he just said. And those people alive at the time, who he's speaking to at that time, they were alive to see that happen. So if we, if we understand that what's happening in Matthew 24 is a, is a description of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, okay? That's what he's talking about. That's all he's talking about. Um, using apocalyptic hyperbole, which is something that is used all through Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. So keep that in mind. And what I show in the book is that when Paul in 1 Thessalonians is describing what we think is a rapture, what Paul is actually describing in, in also figurative terms is the exact same event. He's also describing the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which at the time he wrote this hadn't happened yet. But And so what I do is I give you a parallel between uh, things that are mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and things that are mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 24. And when you see them put side by side, you can see they're describing the exact same things. Both Paul in 1 Thessalonians and Jesus in Matthew 24 talk about the return of Christ coming from heaven with the angels, the sound of a trumpet, the believers gather together in the clouds. The timing of this event is unknown. It will come like a thief. The people are unaware of it. It's compared to birth pains. Uh, believers are urged to be sober and vigilant. And there's a warning against drunkenness. So, I mean, the parallels between 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 are astounding. They're not talking about different events. They're both describing the coming of Jesus. And again, it's not a literal coming, physically coming. It's a coming the way Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and other Old Testament prophets described God coming in the clouds, they use the exact same language, that God would come in the clouds against Egypt, or against Edom, or against Babylon, or even against Jerusalem. And that coming was, again, um, seen as a, a corrective, a, uh, a discipline, right, against not paying attention to the message that God had been giving them to walk a different way, to live a different way. It's fascinating. I think it is. And here's the thing, if nothing else, no matter what you believe about end times prophecy, I, and even if you don't end up agreeing with, with my conclusions in the book, I promise you this, you will learn things about end times prophecy and those scriptures that I promise you probably no one has ever told you before. So if nothing else, you're going to get a completely different perspective on these things, um, especially if you've been raised like I was in this dispensational end times futurism thing uh, that came from Darby. And along those same lines of of Jesus coming again, you you asked this question: What if the second coming of Christ started two thousand years ago and is still in motion today? Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, that's probably that, that's probably the last third of the book where I kind of go into that because I I do think this is um, I'm not sure it's unique with me, but it's a, certainly a, a view that I know a lot of people haven't heard or considered before. So I kind of call it the slow motion second coming of Christ. Uh, and again, what I mean by that is kind of what I was alluding to at the beginning. It's the idea that Christ comes into the world um, within us, that we are the second coming of Christ because we are the incarnation of Christ. And as Christ comes alive and abides and awakens in human beings on this planet, 
more and more and more of Christ fills this earth than, than there was 2,000 years ago. So that's why I can say there's more of Christ in the world today than there was 2,000 years ago. Jesus gives us these two analogies. He talks about a mustard seed, right, which is this tiny little seed. It's only one seed. But when that seed dies and falls into the ground, it bears fruit, and it, it becomes this massive mustard tree that he says covers the whole earth and all the birds of the air make their home in it. He gives us another analogy where he talks about uh, this little tiny, tiny pinch of yeast. That again, it's just one little tiny pinch of yeast. It seems like nothing. But when it is put into this massive lump of dough, um, it slowly begins to fill the entire lump of dough. This is the same exact, and both of these are the image of, again, Jesus being the first, right? He is Christ. And so he dies, he resurrects. He's the vine, if you think of it this way too. The vine is just one thing, but then what comes out of that vine? Thousands of branches come out of this one vine. This, again, this is a picture of the plan. This has always been the plan. So the way that Christ comes into the world is through us. Um, so another thing I point out along these lines is in, in, the, in the book of Romans, there's a really uh, fascinating passage. And I think it's probably, for me, it was probably the key passage that set my wheels turning in this direction. It's where Paul says in Romans, he says, all of creation is groaning, not for Jesus to return. Now that alone is a shock because I think that's what we're, again, that's what we're groaning for. That's what we keep waiting for. Jesus, just come back and fix things. When are you going to hurry up and come back and make things right? Um, so that's what we think. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, all creation is yearning, groaning, crying out. All of creation for one thing to happen. And it's this, for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. That's for us to wake up and recognize Christ in us. That's why Jesus. That's why Paul can say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. And so it's this slow motion second coming of Jesus where more of Christ is entering the world every day, inevitably, like that, like that yeast, which is slowly filling the lump of dough, uh, like that little mustard seed that is slowly growing until it becomes this massive tree, like a, like a vine that continues to grow but puts out branch, you know, thousands of, uh, of little branches. This is the picture. This is the plan. So that's what I mean when I say um, that I believe the second coming began when Jesus said, it's better for you if I go away. And then the whole, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on all flesh. Now Christ abides in us. We abide in him. We, we now are the hands and feet of Christ. We are the body of Christ in the world today. And in this way, Christ will inevitably come. His kingdom will cover the earth. And we'll see the culmination of this, as, in, as it says in Revelations, that the kingdoms of this world will have become the kingdom of our God. That is inevitable. I would say it's inevitable. Now, is it slow? Is it almost imperceptible? Is it three steps forward, two steps back? Yes, but we're not worried. It's going to happen. It's Again, I believe it's inevitable that it's going to happen. Um, but it's crucial that we, rec that, we, that we become the sons and daughters of God um, who recognize, who awaken, right? to realize who we are, recognize our part to play in this. Because as long as we're twiddling our thumbs, this is my, I think is the danger of Darby's end times futurist stuff, because it, it paralyzes us. It takes our mind off of what I just described. It, 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 it makes us not wait, it's not see my role and what I 
the role that I play, the critical role that I play in, in what God is doing in the world right now, it makes me sit back and twiddle my thumbs and just wait for Jesus to hurry up and come back and fix it. And unfortunately, since 1830, the church has started to believe that it should just sit around and wait. Why bother? You know, why take care of the earth? It's all going to burn anyway. You know, why, why have this effort, you know, to change the world? It's, you know, it doesn't really matter. Jesus is coming back any day now, I promise. It's, it's you know, we're closer today than we were before, right? It's always that language of, it's any minute now, it's any day now, just any day now, it's going to happen in your lifetime. I just saw an article today. In, your li- in our lifetime, Jesus will come back. Well, he will, <laughs> especially if we allow him to live in us and through us. And in that way, absolutely, he will. Now, you had mentioned uh, that this idea of end times eschatology sort of was originated from Darby. And, and sort of a, a thread throughout scripture was found to sort of build the theology. And I think one of those threads is probably the language and vernacular, last days. We see that a lot in the New Testament. What does that even mean, Keith? Well, see, that, that would be, it would be really helpful if we understood those things. Yes, De- defining that those terminologies is really important, <clears throat> right? So, and I do, I go through the, the book and do this as well, where you know, last days is definitely one of them, right? I hear, we hear this all the time. We're in the last days. Yeah. 2000 years ago, um, John said he was in the last, we, they were, they were in the last days. Um, their mind was there in the last days. And again, it's not that, oh, they were wrong. They, 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 they were wrong about that. You know, when Jesus said he was coming soon, when he, when he says in revelation, these things will soon come to pass that the, that he is coming quickly, like all that language, which is all through, you know, revelation and, and that kind of stuff. Well, you know, soon meant more than 2,000 years. Um, and again, that's that's kind of the way we rationalize that, but that's not what it means. I mean, they were, when they said they were in the last days, what they meant was, again, they understood that the end of the age was what Jesus was predicting. That, in other words, the end of the age, which would be visible to them when the, the temple in Jerusalem got knocked to the ground and stayed that way. When the when the Jewish priesthood priest system ended, and that was, and there were no more daily sacrifices, and that, and then to, to this day they are still ended, and so that was the end of the Jewish age. That's what they were expecting. That's to what to them when what they meant when they said we are in the last days. It was the last days of the of the Jewish age. Um, like again, Paul talks about this all all the time as well. He uses these phrases all the time when he talks about the you know, until the end of the age, or he'll say, until the, until the age to come. So they definitely, they definitely understood that they were living at a time where they were, they were the generation that was going to experience the end of the current age they were in, and the beginning of a new one, which would be, again, marked by, sort of the center point would be, when the temple is destroyed, the, the, the Jewish priesthood is abolished, the daily sacrifice ends, and, and now, it, again, that's not like, oh, whoops. I was like, no, this was God's plan from the beginning. This, is, this was why the old covenant um, has been fulfilled. Jesus says, right, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And when he fulfills it, well, then it's, it's done. The author of Hebrews says the old covenant is obsolete. Um, and why? Well, because, there was, again, the author of Hebrews says that, that there was something wrong with that old covenant. And regardless, 
it's done. It's fulfilled and we took care of it. But now a better covenant has come. And this is the new covenant. And the new covenant reality embedded in the new covenant promise is exactly what I'm talking about. You know, if we go and read even in Jeremiah, when, when we get a sort of a, a foreshadowing of that there's going to be a new covenant, which is repeated in, uh, in the New Testament, it's repeated in Hebrews. Jesus proclaims in the upper room, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This, this you know, bread is my body broken for you. The new covenant, the promise of the new covenant, the details of it are this. When God makes this new covenant with us, he says this. I will be your God and you will be my people. And none of, no one will say to their neighbor, know the Lord. You should know the Lord because they will all know me. In, in other words, directly, individually. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, my sheep hear my voice. I can talk to you directly. You and I have a one-on-one -on -one connection. Why? Because the spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh. So this potential Direct one-to-one -one connection. There's no mediator between God and man except Jesus Christ. So the new covenant is the promise that we now have this direct connection with God. He is abiding in us. We are abiding in him. And we now are the new priesthood. We are, this is what it talks about all through again. First Peter talks about this, this, this idea that because the old is gone and the new has come. So the, the old temple is gone, but you're now the temple, Paul says. You and I, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple now, the New Testament temple, where God lives by his spirit. You, you're the temple. And you're the priest, right? We're all priests in God's kingdom. Uh, it says this in First Peter. It says this in Revelation. He has made us, all of us, to be priests in his new kingdom. And, by the way, you and I are the daily sacrifice, right? Romans 12. We should all be our, we, therefore, we should all be these living sacrifices to God. So we are, we are the temple, we are the priesthood, and we are the new living sacrifice. All of those old shadows have been fulfilled in Christ, and now because they are true of Christ, they are true of you and me. And, and so this is the, the new vision, I think, we need to understand. We need to understand how all these things connect together, and again, the role that we play in this process. And right on the heels of that, I, I guess as we bring our, our time to a close, how does the church then move forward in understanding the end, so to speak, so that we are better informed, so that we can better engage in the world, and we can be those priests and kings to God. Yeah. Well, this is, and of course, this is the challenge, isn't it? I think um, one of the challenges that, that, that I think I have in this book, and, uh, and that we might have individually, is sort of shifting our paradigm away from this end times Darby futurism, which we, most of us grew up with. Uh, into the kind of vision that I'm talking about. And again, that I believe that Jesus and Paul and, and the New Testament wants us to, to get. Um, here's the problem. Darby's story, uh, it's a killer story, man. Dude, you got like 10-headed dragons and, you know, uh, scorpion, you know, these creatures with tails of scorpions and with horses with tails of scorpions flying around, stinging people. And, uh, you know, uh, this this in times antichrist figure who's going to take over the world and you know put us in concentration camps and persecution you know i mean it's it captures the imagination so number one it's very difficult to let go of that right it's a great story and and, it's, and it, people have even told me man keith you're taking this away from me i feel like i feel depressed i feel like i got you know i don't have that to quote unquote look forward to like yeah what a great thing to look forward to but you know we kind of it's that's our expectation so if i take that away from you I feel like I need to give you something 
I need to give you an imagination of something that's at least as good as that, if not better than that. And so here's what I feel like, hopefully we can frame it this way, this might help us. Rather than thinking of the end or this, you know, the second coming, uh, this thing we're looking forward to as this big blockbuster, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer sort of uh, explosions and monsters and, you know, cool, wow, dude, that's awesome kind of summer blockbuster movie. What if instead we thought of it like this? And this is what I really do believe it is. What it really is, is Jesus coming to you and to me and to every single one of us individually. And he hands you a lightsaber and he says, do you want to overthrow the empire? Do you want to rescue the princess? Do you want to bring balance to the force? Because you're the one, we need you. You have a role to play in this story. Step into the story. Learn how to use that lightsaber. <laughs> Learn how to connect to the force because you, there is a struggle going on and there is a battle going on and we have a job, you have a job to do. You have a direct role to play in this story. You're not a spectator sitting back at your popcorn watching some amazing thing that's gonna happen going, go Jesus, that's not the plan. The, the, if anything, Jesus is the one sitting with the popcorn looking at you going, go, you can do it, that's right. And I'm with you all the way. So if we can just have that shift in our perspective, that what we're being called into or being invited into is a story that is an adventure story that is going on right now, that God is doing something in the world right now. And we as members of the body of Christ have a very active, critical role to play in his plan to, uh, to bring the kingdom to earth, right? And to overthrow the kingdoms of this world so that they become the kingdom of our God. It's fantastic. And it's a killer image. <laughs> I hope so, man. I'm trying to find ways to get people like, you know, as excited about it as I am. Because I, I think if we can really get that imagination, it does change everything. It becomes like, oh my gosh, every day I wake up and go, all right, let's go. What are we doing today? Right? Yeah. And it, and it sort of takes this existential fear out of what whatever the end is. And it sort of says, okay, every day is a new adventure. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 great, man. Thank you. And and thanks so much for being on the show. Where can people connect with the book and where can they connect with you? Yeah, thank you. Well, um, all my books in the Jesus Sun series are available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or, you know, if you want uh, different places, you get books. But Amazon is kind of the main place. Um, the book is available in print and in Kindle. And hopefully soon it will also be available in audio. Um, you can follow me um, at keithgiles.com. It's my blog is at Pathios, but you can get there at keithgiles.com. And um, I'm on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast with a couple other co-hosts. We do that a couple times a month. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook and happy to engage with people. And I think I'm on Instagram as well, but uh, you can follow me, but I don't post very often. <laughs> well, that's great. We'll make sure we throw it all in the show notes. But again, Keith, thank you so much for being on the show. Joey, thank you so much. God bless. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks so much for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram at dismantlepod or send us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. 